Hey, hey, you are listening to Bold Is, a women's ministry podcast with the goal of helping you learn the Bible verse by verse. As you may know by now, we are working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And before we get to that, there's something I need to let you know. Everything we make on our website and even our podcast is 100% free. We never want a woman to not learn scripture due to money. However, running a ministry does cost money. So if you believe in what we're doing, would you consider helping support our ministry? We would love for you to subscribe to our Patreon, which is a community of folks just like you. Our plans range from $1 a month to $25 a month. Your monetary donation gives you access to discounts on our merchandise, additional resources on our website, and early access to all of our content. With your support, you are ensuring that we can effectively deliver daily content to help women better understand their Bible, which in turn creates disciples who impact the kingdom in greater ways. If you can't afford to help, we ask that you send us some love by praying for our ministry. We also have merchandise available on our website at www.theboldmovement.com forward slash products. When you receive your new shirt or hat, take a photo and tag us on social media so we can see how great you look in it. Okay, friends, are you ready to learn the conclusion of Mark chapter 6? You are listening to Bold Is, a ministry podcast training women how to handle the Word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host, Megan Rawlings. Okay, last week I told you guys that I wanted to do this um, chapter in two sections because this is like insane. Some of the stuff I'm going to share with you guys today and I'm really excited. So if you are new here before we get started, welcome to the podcast. Like we said before, our goal is to walk you through scripture verse by verse. So what we're going to do is read a section of the passage and then we're going to try to break it down for you. I'm going to be reading from the ESV or the English Standard Version for those who want to follow along. This is the word of God, and it is profitable for you. Starting in chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, had been raised. Before I go any further, I think I need to shine a light on John the Baptist here just a little bit. Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 says um, in, in reference to John, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This was from the mouth of Jesus. That's right. He said that John the Baptist was the greatest person born of any woman. Crazy. I'd love to have that kind of reputation with Jesus. Before he was born, he had the Holy Spirit. This is um, also the cousin of Jesus as well. If you all get a chance, I would love for you to check out more on John the Baptist. But today, for the sake of time, let's just keep continuing. Chapter, or verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay. This kind of goes back even a little bit more, so I'm going to share some extra information with you. You thought your family was messed up. Listen to this. Let's break it down. Herodias was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, Aristobulus. Probably butchered that name, but you get the point. This makes 
Herodias, Herod's niece, okay? (laughs) Not only was she Herod's niece, but she was married to his other half-brother, Herod Philip. So, she was also his sister-in-law, okay? So, Herodias was Herod's niece and sister-in-law. Then, he convinces her to leave his brother and become his wife. Obviously, this was not okay, and John the Baptizer had something to say about it. And if you look back in Levitical law, starting in chapter 18, verse 16, as well as Leviticus 20, 21, you'll see that this is just not acceptable. And even by today's standards, it's a little weird. Let's continue on, verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him, talking about John, and wanted him to be put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When I first read this, I was amazed at the confusion of Herod. Why was he protecting John, and what in the world is happening here? As one person stated, and I think this is kind of shining a little bit of light on this information, the truth will make you free, but first, it will make you miserable. (laughs) I just wanted you guys to know exactly how that worked. So just because you tell the truth doesn't mean it's always going to be light and fluffy. But it does set you free. So don't let that be intimidating, okay? Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me. For whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Ew, first of all, stepkid, gross, but whatever. Um, Typically, this dance that Herodias' daughter did was, well, okay. This dance that we're reading about would have been done by the court prostitutes or the professional court dancers. However, Herodias, which is Herod's wife, sent her daughter, which would be his stepdaughter, ew. And I want to make sure it's known that women of her rank would not have danced like this for these men. This was very out of character and possibly one of the reasons that Herod was so impressed. They uh, say that the stag parties that Herod was throwing here were pretty common among the Herodians, and so um, that would have been super common for women to come in and dance. But for your own stepdaughter to come in and dance, that, that was not super common at all. Verse 23, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and first of all, just keep in mind that he was, there's a lot of drinking that goes on at these parties. So it's not like he's a sober, logical man at this point. So verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Okay, listen to what William Lane says here. The king was greatly distressed, as we see in verse 26. He was in genuine grief. This word was used only one other time in the New Testament, and it was to describe Jesus' pain in the Garden of Gethsemane, which you see in Mark 14.34. For a moment, at least Herod's conscience was mightily torn. On the other hand, John was a good man and had done Herod much good. Herodias had deceived him. But then again, what would his friends think? These tribunes could carry news of his um, taking back 
this information to Rome, and the whole imperial court would laugh. He could not have that. There was only one choice. Verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles were returned to... Okay, that's it. (laughs) They took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now we're moving on to a different scenario. So I kind of want you to think of this as like a scene break. I just dropped my heating pad. You guys will have to excuse me. I am like an 80-year-old woman. No offense to 80-year-old women at all. But I love sitting with a heating pad. So I just dropped it. I apologize. (laughs) So let's start in um, verse 30. Because this is like scene. Okay, next scene. We are moving on and we're um, heading over to the apostles and Jesus. So let's do that. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got got there ahead of them. Ladies, remember the disciples are returning after Jesus sent them out two by two earlier in this chapter when we read that. It appears by the language of Mark, um, what he, the language he uses here, that there were crowds following each other. So it says they were coming and going and that the disciples had no downtime. So as one crowd went in, as they were leaving, another crowd was going in. And it was like this constant steady flow of people. So they went out on a boat to take a breath. Any introverts out there that can identify with this? But there's a little bit more to this than what meets the eye here in Mark. There's something else I want to point out. It does not say this in the Gospel of Mark, but that's why it's so cool that God gave us four different perspectives on the story of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, it tells us that right after John's disciples bury him, they go and tell Jesus about his death. Jesus went with the disciples, and I'm making an assumption here, but I think at this point they all just needed a break. Then they came back to the shore and check out what happens next. Verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Guys, this is alluding to Old Testament prophecy. Check it. Numbers twenty-seven seventeen says, To go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And, that's right, there's more than one. Ezekiel 34, 5 says, So they were scattered because there were no shepherd, and when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. William Lane says, In the carefully constructed twofold introduction to the feeding narrative, which is what we're getting ready to get to, it is the wilderness motif which exhibits the deeper significance that Mark found in the events he records. The time of rest in the wilderness has come when the Son of Man establishes meal fellowship with his people. This next part that we're about to dive into, which is the feeding of the 5,000, must be read in contrast to the events that led up to this. Remember, Herod and his drunken debauchery, and now we have 5,000 very hungry average folks, some poor I'm sure, who are here waiting to learn and see this new Messiah who's come. I'm going to quote William Lane one more time for good measure, and because I just like him. 
In contrast to the drunken debauchery of the Herodian feast, and yes, I reuse that word debauchery because I think it's pretty fancy. <laughs> Mark exhibits the glory of God unveiled through the abundant provision of bread in the wilderness where Jesus is Israel's faithful shepherd. I love that the entire Old Testament points to Christ, which he told us in John. But I love seeing it. I love typology. I'm like the biggest fan. And there's a lot of it in our Levitical Bible study that we are doing that releases in December. I think you guys are going to like it. I hope so, at least. <laughs> Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Okay. I want to make a side note here. Did anyone else picture this happening like a brunch kind of ordeal, or is that just me? When I read this and studied it with my Greek professor in preparation for y'all, it occurred to me that this was a later hour, not brunch time. And I know that because I did not know the Greek word for hour or late, so I had to look that all up. <laughs> Movies that depict this always show it as if it were the middle of the day, but this is actually happening around dinner time. Just something that I just now realized and wanted to point out. So, anywho, let's keep on reading. Verse 36. Send them away to go into the surrounding... Oh, and this is the disciples talking to Jesus. Surra uh, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And that's kind of like a sarcastic tone, just so you guys know. And for reference, 200 denarii was pretty close to about a year's salary of um, someone who was like a day laborer. Verse 38, And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And all and when they had found out, sorry, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Something that's really cool that I learned today, and it's the first time I've ever learned it, is that um, when you pray before you eat, that is actually based on a Jewish custom. So um, Jesus is following that Jewish custom and protocol by blessing the food before they ate it. And I just think that's really cool. Verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Have you all noticed that Jesus goes to a remote place constantly and prays? Here's my question for you. How often are you taking the time to go and be alone with God for prayer? How could that change our lives? I think it has some drastic effects. So let's keep going in verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, today we would say like 3 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Okay, let's talk for a second about this, because I'm going to give you some information that's probably not what you learned in Sunday school, and that's probably going to make you 
not feel excited. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it'll be like, oh, that's a great perspective. Maybe you'll be like, you're crazy. That's okay. I can be wrong sometimes. Um, but I, I think this is kind of like a, I want you guys to really open your minds to this. Okay. The passage we just read is a very popular passage. However, did you all notice that Peter stepping out of the boat is not even mentioned in this gospel? Do you know why? Because that's not the point of what is happening here, okay? That is not the point of the story. So often, we look at this story and we make it about Peter putting his eyes on Jesus. And as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts sinking. That's missing the entire point. Mark didn't even think the fact that Peter was on the water even mattered in this story. Because it's not, it has nothing to do with it. Job 9.8 says, and listen to this. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. What? That's right. Jesus is claiming to be God by walking on the water. Peter steps out and cannot do it without Jesus helping him. Even then, he begins to sink. Still, that's not the point of the story. The point is, Jesus really is God, and even when a man tries to be God, it does not work. Only Jesus can because he was 100% man, 100% God. Bet y'all weren't expecting that. Verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, let's take a minute and check out verse 52. I was reading in a commentary, and the guy who wrote it, Hughes Kent, said, and this is important, So it is with us. So often when Christ comes to us in our misery, we reject him because we do not believe he will really come to our aid. We think he can help others, but that he is unaware of our situation and powerless. Or, in the perverse pathology of our hearts, we may even reject his help when it comes because it does not come in the way we expect. Thus, we push away the very hand which would heal us. Let's continue on with verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Guinness. Oh, man. Gennesaret, sorry I butchered that, and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in, villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many had touched it were made well. Okay, so you all remember when the woman who was bleeding touched the hem of Jesus' garment was healed? Check this out. I went to the Jews for Jesus website and did some looking around. And I typically use Logos for studying purposes, but I thought, eh, why not? Let's see what the Jews for Jesus had to say. And they said, these verses support the earlier theory concerning the Old Testament account for David and Saul. That the hem of edge, hem or edge of a garment stood for the wearer's authority. The woman believed that if she could only touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she would experience the power of his person and authority. Her act was not a matter of superstition, because outside cultures such as the Egyptians and such had superstitions about the tassels, and sometimes it was just decorative pieces. But the Jews had purpose, which you can learn about in our Levitical Bible study. Okay, back to this. But a silent cry for Jesus to grant her his personal attention and healing powder. In contemporary terms, the account might be likened to the public appearance of a popular politician or musician where people want to shake hands or in some way touch and connect with a celebrity. Jesus allowed those who connected with him by touch to experience who he was, the great physician. Guys, that's all I got for you today. 
Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review our podcast, and please check us out at www.theboldmovement.com. If there was something that stood out to you, will you post it on your social media and tag us so we can see what you learned? It would make our day. Okay, ladies, remember, go out and be bold.